Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. President Biden's health care agenda has come into focus after the release of his budget request. However, most of the proposals outlined by the president are unlikely to pass through a deeply divided Congress. In this segment, Brownstein's government relations team discusses all the latest activity on health care, including which provisions made it into the budget request, what can realistically be included in a potential reconciliation package, and why budget reconciliation may be the only viable path to enactment for many of the cornerstones of President Biden's ambitious agenda. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Emily Felder, co-chair of Brownstein's Healthcare Group, Brian McKeon, a former Senate chief of staff with deep procedural knowledge of the legislative process, Laura Johnson, a senior policy advisor focusing on healthcare issues, and Adam Steinmetz, who recently joined Brownstein from the House Budget Committee. Today, we're going to be talking about healthcare and reconciliation, two urgent, but sometimes esoteric subjects for Congress. Adam, let's start with you. The president's budget for fiscal year 2022 was released on Friday, May 28th. You work to the House Budget Committee, so tell us, what does the president's budget actually do? Yeah, so I think the best way to look at the president's budget is to think of it as an aspirational document from the president and the administration. Um, It provides what they view to be the best levels uh, that they recommend for spending and revenue. It also sets forward priorities that the administration uh, has deemed their most important. Um, So you'll see within this budget, there's a lot of focus on the American jobs and the American families plan. Um, However, it it is important to point out that Congress has the power of the purse, so they have no obligation to adopt any or all of the proposals that are set out before them. Brian, you've got a lot of experience dealing with the president's budget and the congressional budgeting process. Are there reasons to believe that President Biden's fiscal year 2022 budget will have a longer shelf life than its recent predecessors. Yes, Drew, I I believe that'll be the case, mostly because of uh, unified Democratic control uh, of the House and Senate. We are in a process here where in in the next couple of weeks and months, we will see the the House and the Senate Budget Committees and the full bodies consider an FY22 budget resolution, which will include reconciliation instructions, which will allow Democratic majorities overcoming the filibuster, the opportunity to enact a lot of what was in the budget. So the answer is yes. You know, we often see, uh, in particular on, on the House and the Senate floor, members of the opposing party put up the president's budget as, as a, uh, a cudgel, um, trying to get people to vote against it um, and embarrass the White House. But whether or not that happens this year, a lot of what's in this document can become funded through reconciliation, even outside of the traditional regular appropriations process, which we'll also see play out in the next couple of months. So very different from what we've seen in past years, where Washington regulars would say routinely that the president's budget is dead on arrival. Yeah, um, just because there's going to be so many opportunities through reconciliation for a lot of these proposals to get funded and, and you know, sort of enacted and supported that way rather than, than the traditional means of legislating. Emily, one of the things that the president's budget does do is provide a formal statement of the administration's priorities. What are the most important health care initiatives in the Biden budget? 
Well, Drew, you know, one of the significant priorities that's clear from this budget document is investment in the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, that is an achievable goal for this administration. A lot of the leadership within HHS were around when the ACA was passed into law. They were congressional staffers. They were members of Congress uh, that voted for the ACA. So one of the top healthcare initiatives is more investment in the ACA in the form of premiums. So it expands the individuals who are eligible to get premium assistance from the government to pay for their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Um, that was something that was extended for two years um, in March by Congress. And a lot of people say that because those extended premiums were passed into law, over a million people have now received health insurance that did not receive health insurance through the ACA before that. So that is something that the Biden administration wants to make permanent. Uh, the other big healthcare initiative is a huge investment in home and community-based services, and that's essentially home health workers. Biden proposes to invest $400 billion into the home health care industry, which has really been overlooked, I think, in past budgets. Um, this was also part of his, you know, American Families Plan agenda, and that's, you know, a really significant piece of this health care proposal in, in the budget. Thanks, Emily. Laura, let me ask you to build on Emily's response, if you don't mind. Is there a theme or an overarching goal with respect to the health care initiatives in the Biden budget? Is it lower drug prices, expanding health insurance coverage, bolstering the Affordable Care Act, or something that I'm not thinking of? Yeah, so I think it's a it's a really interesting question. I think all of the the items that you mentioned are are highlighted in the budget, but probably not to the degree that a lot of Democrats would like. You know, I think things like the public option or lowering the Medicare age to 60 or, you know, lowering drug prices by allowing Medicare to negotiate prices. They're all mentioned in the budget, but there's not a whole lot of meat behind them. And I think that that's consistent with where where Biden has put his focus on health care, like Emily said. You know, I think that they are very ACA centric right now. That's what they put in the, the American Families Plan to to make those tax credits um, permanent. And so I think that that is where um, the administration has put a lot of their focus because they've made a political calculation that that's what's achievable, um, given the the dynamics um, in the Senate and the House with the narrow margins and what they'd be able to get through reconciliation. Well, thanks, Laura, for distinguishing between the uh, priorities that are just mentioned in the budget and the ones that the administration seems to be ready to put some muscle behind. Just if I could ask you to just conclude that thought by telling us which of these priorities is most likely to be enacted into law. Sure, happy to. Um, and I think the you know the legislative vehicle that we are looking at for um, for these policy ideas is is through budget reconciliation. You know, I think that the ACA um, expansion and making some of those um, the APTCs, the advanced premium tax credits, permanent is probably the most likely thing. I think behind that, um, they're also. Um, you know, going to to try and get something done on drug prices. 
though I don't think it's going to be as as robust as the House Democrats have put forth in in H.R. 3, just because they don't have the votes for that in the Senate or even in the House for that matter. So I think you will probably see um, things like repealing the rebate rule or capping Part D inflation costs, um, you know, materialize in this um, reconciliation bill primarily because they're revenue raisers. So they'll they'll be able to help the Democrats offset um, some of the, the things around coverage expansion or other things that they want to pay for. Emily, let me go back to you, if I can, quickly. Which of the president's health care priorities in the budget are least likely to be enacted into law, in your opinion? So I think anything overly ambitious, anything that was, you know, seen as a huge campaign promise, I think is going to be difficult to accomplish. As Laura mentioned, you know, when you're dealing with budget reconciliation, you have a limit to sort of the types of policies that you can enact. They have to have a budget impact, uh, firstly. And then secondly, you know, we're dealing with a very thin margin in the Senate. So something like public option, Medicare for all, that was something that, that was popular on the campaign trail, but in reality, it's very difficult to overhaul those systems. And I think, you know, the, the Biden administration is being calculated about not wanting to uh, be overly ambitious in their healthcare proposals and sort of lose sight of other priorities um, that they want to make an impact in. And so, you know, a lot of folks criticize the Trump administration for spending a lot of their early time capital on repeal and replace of the ACA back in 2017. And I think Biden is trying to be more pragmatic about let's look at ways to incrementally improve the ACA, make some incremental changes to drug pricing without overhauling the entire system, which would be very difficult to accomplish with the current margins. Let's circle back to our budget expert, Adam one thing we can all agree on is that the congressional budget process is arcane. Let's try and make it concrete for our listeners. Now that Congress has received the president's budget, what happens next? What's the timetable? Yeah, so I think there are two things that are currently happening um, at the same time. So the first one is with the appropriations process. The budget committee must set the top level of spending. So um, it was recently reported that in the month of June, they were most likely going to pass what is known as a deemer. Um, a deemer is, sets the enforceable discretionary spending limit when there's not a budget resolution that is passed. Um, the House budget chairman, John Yarmouth, said that these levels will most likely match the Biden request that was in his budget. Um, so the Senate will have to do their own thing. Um, they may match what the House does. They may be something different, but they'll have to conference together later to decide on that. The second thing that's occurring right now also is that the budget committee is starting to put together their budget resolution. Um, this will be necessary for if they want to do another reconciliation package. John Yarmouth again mentioned that uh, they will probably do a skinny budget, which will just project out the top line spending and revenue for the next 10 years. Um, from there, then they will be able to go to reconciliation whenever they deem necessary. Brian, can Congress get all this done before fiscal year 2022 begins on October 1st, 2021? And if not, does it matter? Uh, unlikely. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter, but it, it, it does not, as we sit here um, in, in the 
early part of um, June um, look like they're going to be able to, to do all this prior to the end of the fiscal year. But it does not matter for from the perspective of um, teeing up a reconciliation bill. Um, folks will remember um, not too uh, long ago history of January when um, Democrats in the House and, and Senate, excuse me, February, Democrats in the House and Senate passed a budget resolution for FY21, which was already, we we're already in the middle of FY21. They did so to to tee up reconciliation. So as Adam mentioned, you know, if there's going to be top line numbers deemed by the budget committee, it will allow the appropriations committee to, to do their work with top line numbers in place for, for each appropriations bill. But sort of the, the resolution process can, can kind, of, kind of view that as a sidecar to that. And, and when they feel like there's a political will and momentum to passing a resolution in the House and Senate, of course, they, they have to do that in order to, to tee up reconciliation. Um, they'll do it. Um, it won't be painless. Um, there will be some pain and some, some time spent um, doing so, but they can do that through the end of the, the calendar year of, of uh, 2021 for the FY22 process. Adam, we need to zero in on the reconciliation process, right? We've mentioned it several times. Can you give us a quick sketch of how reconciliation works and why, as a practical matter, it's the only vehicle for passing significant health care legislation? Yeah, so I think we, we, Brian and I both mentioned it. The first step would be for there to be the passage of a budget resolution in both the House and the Senate. Um, and that must include budget reconciliation instructions. So these reconciliation instructions tell certain committees to either change their spending, their revenues, or their deficits by specific amounts of money. Each committee then would write a bill to achieve that target value that was put forward. If it's more than one committee is told to act, then the budget committee will come back together to then combine all these bills into one large bill. Um, this bill would then uh, go for a vote on the floor. This is important, though, because of the special status it has within the Senate. The bill cannot be filibustered, and it only needs a simple majority to pass. Um, they also have a set of rules known as the Bird Rules, which limits what can be included. But it's this fact that it can't be filibustered and only needs a simple majority of why this is so important. And it's the only really way that significant health care legislation get passed. With a 50-50 split in the Senate, there's not going to be 10 Republicans who come join the Democrats in order to pass the Democrats' proposals. So they must do it through reconciliation. Brian, Adam reminds us that the Byrd Rule limits the types of provisions that can be included in a reconciliation bill. We were talking earlier about Biden's health care priorities. Which of these priorities, if any, would survive a bird bath, as it's called? Uh, well... You know, Drew, I'm I'm um, I'm not going to regret making predictions here that might might come untrue down the road. But what we can generally say about the bird rule, um, and you know, I think for folks listening, it's important to remember this is an iterative process. You know, there is a group of people in the parliamentarians' office in the Senate. Bird rule just applies to Senate procedure; it doesn't apply to House procedure. Parliamentarians decide what has an incidental budgetary impact and you know, there are a variety of other things as well that, that are, are no goes under the bird rule. But if the budget impact is not, you know, significant enough. Um, and then of course that's a determination that the parliamentarian makes on our own, um, that it's not included. We saw that process play out um, with a minimum wage back in February and March with the, the first reconciliation bill passed this year. And I think it's, it's important for, for people to, who are listening to, to acknowledge that this is an iterative process and 
there are smart people on the Hill that they want to see a policy enacted have a lot of time now to figure out, you know, how they might be able to change the dynamics of things as they're currently drafted um, to fit within sort of the budget specific window that you have to fit in. Now, of course, that's not going to apply to everything, but in particular on the healthcare side, where there is so much federal revenue, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, tax provisions that are sort of on their face, good to go in bird. If you can put a lens that that sort of hits direct spending over a healthcare uh, proposal, you might have a decent chance at seeing it go in. So it's kind of hard to say policy X is not going to fit, policy Y is not going to fit, because they will look and have conversations with the parliamentarian um, as they're pulling this bill together to figure out, all right, do we need to change a couple of things here? What, you know, with the minimum wage debate, there either wasn't a political will or time to sort of go back to the drawing board and, and, and go back in and argue different ways to sort of um, you know, modify those proposals. But there were discussions about it. And, and you have to assume that similar things will play out with respect to healthcare proposals that are in the Biden budget and the Democrats in the House and Senate want to see enacted into the law. Emily, we've been talking about how Democrats might approach health care issues and reconciliation. What about Republicans? If Democrats pursue a reconciliation strategy, does that mean that Republicans are left out completely or only left out partially? Are Republicans, are Democrats not going to try and get Republican votes for these health care changes? You know, um, the answer is they, they will likely be left out for the for the most part. You know, I mean, the entire point of the reconciliation process is so that you can do it in a partisan way. So this is how Republicans passed the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That was how reconciliation is how the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act. So the entire point of reconciliation is to be able to do this with only Democratic or only Republican votes. So there will not be much, you know, if we see a reconciliation package come down the pike, there's not going to be a lot that's going to appeal to Republicans. You know, Republicans are not in a place where they're supporting expansion of the ACA. They're not going to support, you know, a $400 billion investment in home health care without some sort of offset, some sort of way to pay for that. And Republicans have also expressed a lot of concern about the, the high levels of spending in the last reconciliation bill that passed in March. So, so you don't, I don't expect to see a lot of Republican engagement here. I think they're spending a lot more time thinking about ways to move forward in a bipartisan way. Um, some of the areas they're thinking about bipartisan changes is potentially telehealth, um, you know, potentially maternal health and care. But in the reconciliation package, you're not going to see much from Republicans. Laura, if all the Republicans vote against the reconciliation bill that includes health care initiatives, does it matter? If so, why? What are the consequences? So I think it does and it doesn't. I realize I'm um, not really answering your question, but I think that um, Democrats, you know, as Emily said, are not counting on Republicans to vote for this bill. That's why they're using reconciliation. And I'm putting my liberal partisan hat on here. I mean, I think that Republicans have um, struggled with their messaging around what they're for in healthcare, um, other than repeal and replace ACA. And it will be interesting to see how these these votes, both on the American Rescue Plan and then on the whatever this next iteration of a um, reconciliation bill looks like, 
because I think the ACA is very popular now. Um, as Emily said, we've had an over a million new signups um, on the, the exchanges and the American Rescue Plan only made coverage more affordable. So um, I think that Democrats are making a political calculation that these investments are going to be popular with, with voters come, come the midterm. So I think there could be political ramifications for um, not supporting these coverage expansions. Emily, let me go back to you and, and let you have the last word on this issue, if you like. As Laura points out, the Affordable Care Act has turned out to be quite popular. The vote to re- Repeal it, only Republicans voted uh, to repeal the ACA, was unpopular. Do Republicans have an alternative health care platform? President Trump had promised several times to unveil his health care bill, but that never materialized. Do Republicans have something they're for, as opposed to simply being against what the Democrats are for? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. I think that, you know, when you look at the elections, um, the midterms that have gone sort of back and forth, you know, when the ACA initially passed, um, there were there were a lot of folks that were opposed to the ACA. Um, and then you had sort of Republicans campaigning on repeal and replace. And then it sort of went back and forth where then now it's become more popular. So I think that Republicans tend to be opposed to more federal investment in healthcare, um, more federal investment um, in individual healthcare choices, and typically have embraced sort of more state-based plans, right? Letting states decide what to do as it relates to their own uninsured pools. But that's difficult to do at a federal level because you're you're looking at a way to sort of get the federal government out of healthcare, um, and so I think that that sort of describes the innate struggle with having a massive federal plan from Republicans when the whole idea is we want states to decide, we want localities to decide, rather than having HHS and whoever happens to be secretary be involved in those decisions. So. You know, it is it's certainly, you know, a difficult position, um, but I do think that that is generally the theme um, is that we want less federal government involved in insurance decisions. Brian, if we see a reconciliation bill with health care policy provisions, it's going to have plenty of non-healthcare initiatives, right? Is there an issue that will give this bill irresistible momentum? In other words, are major health care changes tied to major non-healthcare issues? Uh, yeah, I think the answer to that question is, is certainly yes. The Biden administration has put out, you know, two pretty grand proposals, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. In June 2021 right now, it seems unlikely that they're going to they're gonna have multiple opportunities to, to pass, you know, one on its own, the Jobs Plan on its own, the Families Plan on its own. You know, our expectations are that, you know, later this fall, they will take this reconciliation instruction included in the FY22 budget resolution and subtract the things that may or may not get included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's currently being negotiated and take everything else, start from there and winnow away by virtue of opposition from various you know, sections of the House Democratic Caucus or the Senate Democratic Caucus. And we'll see what, you know, what played out in, in February with the rescue plan play out again in that Democrats will negotiate with themselves about what's going to get included. Um, you know, the jobs plan has 
tons of climate and infrastructure proposals in it, tax proposals that will not be in a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Similarly, the families plan has tax proposals um, and healthcare proposals that are unlikely to go in the bipartisan infrastructure plan. So it's, it's, you know, it, it will start big. It will get smaller, most likely. Um, the parameters of things as proposed will change and numbers will change and, and targets will change. Um, but it, 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 you know, our expectation is that it's going to be, um, you know, starting with everything that doesn't get into um, the other moving vehicle. Let's do a lightning round to finish up, folks. Adam, I'll start with you. What are the odds of passage of a reconciliation bill with significant health care provisions? Bottom line. Uh, 95%. <laughs> Brian? I'll go one better, 96%. <laughs> uh, Emily? Oh, gosh, I'm not going to give a number, but I can't imagine Democrats are going to want to pass a bill before the midterms without significant health care provisions. So I would say very good. Laura Johnson? Uh, I think the odds are very good. I think you'll see health care in the bill, though it won't be as significant as what Bernie Sanders wants. <laughs> well said. Well, there you have it, folks. Highly likely to get a reconciliation bill with significant health care provisions. I want to thank my colleagues for participating in this Brownstein podcast, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.